Have you ever had a battle with Tupperware? I like to think of myself as a fairly intelligent person, but, you know, Tupperware has a way of humbling me sometimes. This week we had pot roast, okay, and I'm trying to put the leftovers away, and we got the container out and everything, and, I mean, I'm just struck. I could not get the thing, the lid, on that container. I go back and I look in the, look in the drawer and just make sure, do I have the right lid? Does this one really fit? Is this the right one? And pull it back out. I'm like, okay, yeah, this has got to be it. And I'm like pushing it, using my elbow, whatever I can to try to squeeze that thing on there. I'm trying to conform the lid to the container so that the lid can fit on there. And that conforming process can be painful, right? It can be difficult. God is in the process of conforming us into the image of Jesus. And sometimes that process can be a little painful. Sometimes it can be a little difficult because we're changing identities. Who we were is no longer who we are. And so everything has essential characteristics, right? Everything has these attributes that if you were to remove those attributes, they would no longer be what they were. Right? Take a fish, for example. Right? We all know that fish, they swim in water, they breathe through their gills, that's where they live. You know, now, there's different things fish do. Some fish are big, some are small, some swim in fresh water, some in salt water. We all know this, but if you were to take that fish and you were to put it on the ground and it just started breathing through its mouth and uh, crawling around on the ground, you would know that is no longer a fish. That is something else entirely. Likewise, you take a human and you throw a human in the water. If they just start, they're not, they're not just going to start swimming around and living in the water and sprouting gills and, and, and living like that. That is not human. There are certain characteristics that you just can't take away. Most humans walk, right? Most humans enjoy the ability of walking. But if you were to remove that characteristic, if a human could not walk, if there was some kind of disease, some kind of accident they would be no less human, right? Walking, while a normal characteristic of humanity, is not an essential characteristic of being human. It's a common activity. There are some activities that are true of God, that some things that he does, and then there are essential attributes that this is who he is. And one of the essential characteristics of God that he is conforming us into the image of Jesus, a, an attribute that we call as communicable, that is he shares it with us, is that God is mission. God is mission. It is part and parcel with who he is. God is mission is not something that God does. Mission is not something that God adds to who he is. This mission, sentness, it describes the very identity of who God is. God does not love mission. God does not have a heart for missions. God is not hoping there will be more mission. God is not yearning, oh, come on, let's do some mission. No, God is mission. I mean, if there was some way, it's impossible, but if there was some way that you could extract mission from God... It's not like there would be less things for God to do. You simply wouldn't have God at all because God is mission. He's revealed himself that way all throughout the scriptures. He's, he's referred to, as theologians call him, the sent and sending God. 
He is the sent and sending one. He is sent and he's the one who does the sending. And you don't have to wait to the Gospels to see this. He reveals himself in this manner all the way back from the beginning. He is the external, outwardly oriented God. When he created the universe, when he created the plants and the animals, the stars in the sky, when he created humanity, God sent out his emissary. His word went forth and it fashioned order out of nothing. And God said, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God said, and God said, and God said, his, worth, his word goes forth. And out from him, he creates the universe. He creates everything out of nothing. This is an act of mission. God creates humanity, and then he designates humanity as to be over and above all the rest of creation. And how does he do this? He takes Adam, and he breathes life into Adam's lungs. It's, it's literally his ruah, his breath, his spirit. And then humanity adopts this unique position in the rest of the universe. And then as we know, Adam and Eve, they disobey, right? They have this idea, hey, we want to have the knowledge of God. We want to be like God. They disobey in the garden. And then God expels them from the garden. And what does God do? He goes after them. He sends himself after them. He follows them. This is the whole history of Israel. It is the sent and sending God, sending himself, extending himself into his disobedient people, into the life of Israel. He sent himself through the making of covenants. He sent himself through the laws. He sends himself by sending his Shekinah glory through the Ark of the Covenant, through the Holy of Holies. He sends himself through the work of the judges. He sends his word into the words of the prophets. The whole Old Testament is about this sent and sending God who extends himself into humanity that he has created. Yes, he's holy. Yes, he's glorious. Yes, he's loving. He's patient. He's kind. We know all these things, but how do we know them? Because he is the sent and sending God, the externally focused, the externally oriented one who extends himself to disobedient humanity. You only have to read the Old Testament and you see that God is mission. He is the sent and sending one. But we also have the New Testament. And we see it in the Gospels. And we understand that God who is holy, God who is omnipresent, God who is omnipotent, God who is immutable, omniscient, all these characteristics, out of love for sin, sinful humanity, God the Father sends God the Son. Jesus says over 40 times in the Gospels, the Father sent me. He is the sent one of God, but it doesn't end there. That's not where the cycle stops. Because we understand that God the Father sends God the Son, and then God the Father and God the Son then send God the Spirit. Right? Jesus says that I, I will send the Comforter. The Father will send the Comforter, the Spirit. Now, if you're a triune believer, if you're a Trinitarian Christian, the very way that you must think about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, it has to include this fundamental understanding that the Godhead sends each other, that God is the sent and sending one. 
Because if you take sentness away from God, you haven't got to diminish God. You simply don't have God at all. But understand this, the cycle doesn't even stop there. Okay, the sin and sending God, the Father who sends the Son and the Father and the Son who send the Spirit. Then what happens next? They, he, he sends us. He sends the church. In the same way the Father sent me, Jesus says, so now I send you. So Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he lets them know you are the sent church of God. This is not just something you do. This is what it means to be authentically Christian. You cannot be authentically Christian and not be a sent people. That's, that's what church means, the called out sent ones. So we see in Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. Ephesians 5, verse 15 through 21, Paul is writing to, to help the church understand this is who you are. This is not just what you do. We can't just take this away and you still have other things to do. No, no, if you take that away, you are no longer authentically Christian. This is the church. And so he's writing to the church gathered to get them to understand you must be prepared for the mission fields of life. It's not about more programs at church where we throw up a welcome banner and try to get people here. It's about going into in every corner of creation, every sphere of society, so that Jesus will be seen as all in all. This is the responsibility of the sent people of God, the sent ones of God, the church. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ." Paul's writing to the sent ones, to the called out sent ones, the church, and he says, this is how you walk. This is how you live an authentically Christian life. This is, this is who you are. And he says, to live an authentically Christian life, to be the church you're called to be, you're made to be, to live your identity, this made for more radical Jesus life, it requires two things. You must live with wisdom and you must live full of the Spirit. You must live with wisdom, and you must live full of the Spirit. First, you've got to live with wisdom in evil days. Okay? You see, the days were evil in Paul's time. Even more evil than they are today, but the days are evil today too, right? I mean, we all know the days are evil, but God doesn't send his church to go and to point out and say, look, it's evil. It's evil out there. Look how bad it is out there. No, he didn't send us to go point out how bad things are. Everybody knows things are bad. Everybody knows the days are evil. You don't have to convince anybody of that. We are sent, remember what Jesus said? In the same way, in the same manner that the Father has sent me, so now I send you. You look at the manner in which Jesus was sent. He was sent to a people, to an evil people, to a broken humanity, and he wept over them. 
His heart was moved and it was grieved over these people. And he weeps over them. And then he extends himself into their circumstances, into the daily grind of life. And he offers them hope so that their world can be transformed, so that the world can be transformed. And that's what Paul's writing about. He starts, about, he start, he starts talking about in Ephesians 1, that you are sent into every corner of culture, every sphere of society, so that Jesus can be seen as all in all. In these evil days, you're sent to evil people. Because here's the thing about evil. Evil always presents an opportunity for good. You know that? Evil always presents an opportunity for good. And that's really the next phrase that Paul mentions here. Make the most of every opportunity. Most people see, see evil as obstacle, as defeat. Time to raise the white flag and give up. But the wise Christian knows that from that evil, God can make good. They know how to leverage that evil as an opportunity to advance the kingdom of the sent and sending God. And so we're sent into these evil days to interact with evil people so that their world can be transformed. This is who it is to be the church. See, the question is not where do you live in evil days. That, that's not the question that Paul is addressing. He, that's assumed. The church knows, hey, we live with the evil people in the evil days. We don't just retreat and hide behind walls of our church building in our house. No, we are meant to be with the people. We are the sent ones of God, after all. No, that's all assumed. The question is how. How then do we live with evil people in these evil days, making the most of every opportunity? It's kind of like driving a car, okay? My kids know where to drive, all right? They know if you're on a road. My, my six-year-old, Pierce, he could tell you, you got to stay within the lines. They know that. They, they know I just can't just turn wherever I want to and just go off on the on just the ground or whatever. They, they know, no, you stay on the road in between these lines. They know where. What they don't know is how. They don't get how. See, the question that Paul is addressing, the first generation church, they knew they had to reach their world. The question was not where do they live, not for them. It, it is for us sometimes. But the question was how. And that takes wisdom. That takes godly wisdom to be able to make the most of every opportunity, not just some opportunities. Well, I had a couple opportunities this week, took advantage of one of them. No, Paul is saying to the church, you must take advantage of every opportunity in these evil days. This is why you're here. This is who you are. This is not just optional. This, this is what it means to be authentically Christian. And Paul says you need this wisdom to understand the will of God to understand what he wants out of every situation. Now, that's what the will of God is, to understand what God wants out of every situation. Some people, they read this phrase in Ephesians, and they interpret knowing the will of God as knowing like the specific guidance on the details of life, as if God is going to fill out your day planner and say, all right, after lunch, here's what I want, or after church, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go have lunch. You can have a turkey sandwich. Toasted on wheat bread, you can use a teaspoon of mayonnaise, lettuce, tomato. You got to eat the tomato, it doesn't matter if you don't like it. I want you to eat it, it's good for you. Right? Sometimes we think that God does stuff like that. 
right? I mean, we wouldn't put it maybe in those details, but we would say, well, God, he will tell me uh, where I'm supposed to live. He will tell me what to do next. He will tell me who to marry. He will tell me the job I'm supposed to have, and so on and so on. That's not what Paul is talking about in this phrase. This phrase, the will of God, it refers to knowing what God wants out of every situation in life. And this is a very good thing. Because if you're looking for God to just fill out your day planner and say, spend the next 20 minutes doing this and the next hour doing that and whatever, you must understand right after this passage, we'll get there next week, is a passage on the mission field of the home and how husbands and wives are to relate to one another. And there's this phrase that wives are, submit, are to submit to their husbands. They are to submit to the leadership of the husband. And if you take the leadership of God as that God is going to direct you into every, and he's going to speak to you and just tell you plainly, this is what I want you to do in every single moment of life, then you have to interpret the next section as that the husband must tell the wife what to do in every second of life. And I don't know about you, but for me, that sounds exhausting. I don't even know what to do with my own life half the time. If I gotta tell her, hey, I want you to do this, do this, do that, I don't, I don't want any of that. It's exhausting to me. It's awful for her. But that's not God. God, God is, he said, no, the will of God and a godly husband, what they do is they provide what we want to come out of the choices of our life. This is what our life should produce as we live to the glory of God. That's what the will of God is. It's to be able to look and to say, what does God want out of my marriage? What, what does God want out of my diet? What does God want out of my free time? What does God want as I interact with my neighbors? What does God want out of my job? That's what he instructs us on. That's the will. I mean, Paul, Paul says, we talked about it last week, that we are to live as children of light and please the Lord. So the question comes, what pleases the Lord? The author of Hebrews tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And faith is believing and acting upon what God says. So I must believe and act upon what God says about my marriage. I must believe and act upon what God says about my free time. I must believe and act upon what God says who I am. I must believe and act upon what God says about the culture. That, that's what faith is and that's what pleases God. God's will is not so generally, uh, is not generally given most of the time as so specific. There may be moments in life where you just know, man, God is telling me to do that and I've got to go. Just like there may be times in life when you tell your spouse, we got it. You got to do that. But that is not the normal way in which his will is communicated. The normative giving of his will is, hey, rely on me in each and every situation, and here's what I want this situation to produce. This is the will I have for you. See, there's still this freedom of choice, but there's guardrails on it. And so we walk in understanding. We walk with wisdom. To ask ourselves into each and every moment of life, what does God want out of this? What, what does God want this situation to produce? How can I take this what is evil 
and turn it into good because we know that sometimes it is the most evil, the most difficult, the most dark places of life when then all of a sudden the light is turned on and you feel a comfort, you feel a joy, you feel a peace that you never imagined you could. Sometimes it's in those most evil days that God's grace and his goodness shines most brightly. And so we walk in understanding, but we also walk in the Spirit. That's how we're going to make the most of every opportunity. Walk with understanding, and then you also walk in the Spirit. And Paul, when talking about wisdom, he says, hey, walk with wisdom and don't be foolish. And now when talking about walking in the Spirit, he says, hey, don't drink the spirits, just be filled with the Spirit. That's what he says. Okay, don't, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Don't do that. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because everybody knows that you don't get drunk and then all of a sudden become a better spouse. You don't get drunk and become a better parent. You don't get drunk and become a better worker. You don't get drunk and become a better communicator. No, you, you get drunk and you lose your inability, your, your inhibitions. You lose your self-control. You lose your ability to think clearly, to respond well. And Paul's saying, no, instead, you be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with that, because he will give boldness. He will give clarity. Paul says, you got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you need to know, in the Greek, this is in the continuous present tense. Okay, It's in the present tense, and it's continuous. So it's always, it's this moment by moment. Paul writes in Galatians, he, he says it a similar way, that we walk in the Spirit. And to translate that literally in the English would be like you take each and every step in the Spirit. Because if the next step is not in the Spirit, what is it? It's just a prelude to a fall. So each and every step in the Spirit is this present tense, continuous action. When you're saved, you get the Holy Spirit. Okay, he comes, he seals you, he indwells you, and at that moment you get all the Holy Spirit you will ever get. He gives all of himself to you. He sends all of himself to you. You get all of him. But just because he is present does not mean that you've yielded control of your life over to him. Just because he is there does not mean you are walking in the Spirit. That's why the New Testament, it's filled with the commands, hey, walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. Because a lot of times we just don't. Here's what happens. A lot of us, we can get comfortable with just a little bit of sin in our lives, okay? It's just a little bit. It kind of settles at the bottom of our life. We get comfortable, you know, it can be sins of... Uh, Commission things we do, we hold grudges, we gossip, we lie, cheat, steal, overeat, whatever you want to say. But there's these little sins we can get comfortable with. Could be sins of omission. Things we don't do that we know we ought to do. We don't make disciples. We don't talk to our neighbors. We don't live life with joy. We don't live life with thanksgiving. And we're comfortable with it. And it just kind of settles in and we think, it's no big deal. I'm still living a pretty good life. It's okay. And what we're really doing, we're just living a safe Christian life under our own power, and we call it good enough, but it's empty. And we just, but it settles there, and we think it's okay. And then what happens, you do some Bible study maybe, you hear a sermon, you, uh, you're, you pray, and God kind of convicts you, 
and you begin to walk. You begin to take some steps and you begin to walk in the Spirit. And as you begin to walk in the Spirit and take steps in the Spirit, you see what happens? He surfaces all those things. All those sins that you've just kind of let settle into the bottom of your life as you just live the empty life that you think, oh, nobody notices, it's okay. He begins to surface all these things and they begin to rise to the top. And then all of a sudden, you know you got to deal with that. I can't just hold that grudge against that person. I actually need to go make things right. I can't just continue to gossip or be an ear to people who do that. I have to go and make things right. I can't just simply hole out in my home or behind the church walls and not actually extend myself as the sent people of God and make disciples. No, I, I must be a disciple maker because that is part and parcel with authentic Christianity. But we see this and he surfaces these issues in our life and sometimes, oftentimes what happens is we say, oh man, that's hard. Can't do it. Can't take that next step. Can't take that next step. I, I, I got to keep on walking by myself under my own power because this is safe. This is comfortable. And we settle for a safe, comfortable country club Christianity. But it's really empty. It's really empty. What God wants, as he told the Samaritan woman, is I want to create springs of living water which will well up inside of you and they will just overflow. And you know what happens when that happens? He begins to fill us. And then when it gets full, we don't just say, no, I can't go any further. We continue to take the next step and the next step in the spirit. And what happens? We start dealing with all these sins. All this stuff starts coming out. He starts healing. And then sometimes they come back in because we sin again. And what happens? He continues to overflow. He continues to redeem, and it's overflowing to the people around us. This is the sent people of God. This is how we live. And then it impacts others because we're walking in the Spirit. We're having hard conversations when we have to. We're loving people. We're seeing joy. We're, we, it, it's not shaking. That's, that's where he gets to next. As he talks about this is what it looks like to be lived, to live life by the Holy Spirit. It's not just some external force that produces that in us. It is the sent Holy Spirit of God who indwells us, who lives in us, and then we yield control of, over, of our lives over to him, and he creates these springs of living water that well up inside of us and overflow from within us to the people we're around in every context of life. He's not calling us to more programs. He's calling us to more mission fields. And when we drink deeply of the Spirit, this is what happens. You just look at people and you love them. You, befriend, you just befriend people. And it comes out. I mean, Paul gives the results of a Spirit-filled life. If you, you, you want to know if you're walking by the Spirit? You just test yourself right here in Ephesians 5 and you'll know. He says, you will talk about what you have learned from the Scriptures. What you, what you read in your Bible, it just comes out. You drink deeply of the Spirit. You begin to read the Word, and you, it just, you just can't help it. It just, it just comes out. Things that you love, it just comes out. One of the ladies the If Gathering, Jada Edwards, she was telling the women that 
when people come to you for counsel, as you're talking to your friends, as you're, as you're engaging with the people in your sphere, in your mission fields, if you're just offering advice that doesn't have the gospel, if you're just sharing truth that doesn't include Jesus, you're just making noise, right? Because what comes out of the believer? Truth. That, that's what comes out of the spirit-filled life. Not, not just my empty wisdom that can't even figure out how to put a lid on a Tupperware container. But spirit-filled truth, and it just comes out. We don't, we don't use the Bible as some trivia book so that we can win, like, Bible jeopardy. We, we don't use the Bible as a paddle to beat people with so that they understand what a fallen, depraved sinner they are. No, we use the Bible as a light to our path and we bring that light to the next person and we say, come on, he'll light your way too. He'll tell you what, what he wants out of every situation in life. He'll tell you his will for what he wants your life to produce. Come on, it's an encouragement. And that's how we talk. It just comes out. You'll know you're living the spirit-filled life because it will just come out. The words of Jesus just come out. Paul says another mark of the spirit-filled life is that you'll be singing. You'll be making a melody to God in your heart. I'm really glad he added the phrase in your heart there, you know. I mean, I, I don't have the greatest singing voice. I have a feeling if I just went around singing all the time, I would not be an encouragement to other people. They might pull back and, I don't know, that guy's weird. But the thing is, the spirit-filled life, it's continually marked by joy. There's just joy. It's this inner bubbling of, of gratitude for who God is and who he has made us to be, that he has made us for more, that he's given us purpose, he's given us meaning, he's given us a reason for being. And there's this confidence that it doesn't matter the circumstance, it doesn't matter what's going on in life, there's just this inner confidence and peace that knows that God is in control and he's working all things out. Even in these evil days, even in these times of trouble, God is working all things out and so there's this joy that cannot be shaken because we know he's, he's in control. The third mark of the spirit-filled life is thankfulness. We're always giving thanks. You see that? Always giving thanks to God the Father in everything in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That roots out all complaining. It roots out all murmuring. It roots out all bitterness. It's just this continual attitude of thanksgiving in everything. Not in some things, not in good things, in everything. I had a friend of mine named Greg. He had cancer. It was advanced uh, the prognosis was not good. It did um, eventually take his life. And we were in a group just kind of sharing. And Greg was talking. And, and he was just talking about his whole experience with this cancer. And then he made the statement that he was thankful for the whole experience. Because it clarified to him. God had shown him through this what What's really important in life? And you start about, you talk about a guy not just living on mission, but like mission defining who he is as a sent child of God. I mean, he was going out and he was, every moment he had, he's just befriending people, loving people, sharing Jesus with people. 
And in that, in that small group, as he shared this and how thankful he was for the cancer experience, there was another lady who had cancer as well, and she was sitting there, and she said, you know, God has taught me a lot through this experience also, but I'm not thankful yet, but I want to be. See, it was the life of a spirit-filled man impacting the life of another woman who was not quite as far along yet. And then she saw that, and she said, that's what I want. I want to have that same thankfulness, that same gratitude. I want to learn from this man's experience, and I want God to do that in me. In these evil days, we're going to be put in painful situations. We put in difficult, impossible situations sometimes, unpleasant situations, difficult circumstances. And the will of God is to manifest Jesus, the life of Jesus in you, even in those hard, painful moments of life. So we don't complain, we give thanks in everything. Because even in those situations that look so terrible and that we can't even understand, why is God even allowing this? He's going to do something there that nothing else could do. And so we model the life of our Lord. And when he was on the cross, he said, with the joy set before him, he endured it. With joy. It sounds impossible because it is impossible. This is the impossible, radical Jesus life. You cannot live this life with empty Christianity. You can't do it. You'll settle things to the bottom and you'll say, well, no one really notices this anyway. It's not that big of a deal. You'll never live it. The life that we are called to is the impossible life. And Jesus says the only way you can have it is that I am sending the Holy Spirit to you. And you are now the sent people of God. It's the only way you can approach the evil days with joy, with thanksgiving, speaking words of truth, as if your life is governed by the Spirit. But once you begin to live that way, Man, you'd, you'd never want to live any other way because it's joy, it's fullness, it's thankfulness, it's great. I mean, why, why does that happen? Because the sent people of God, when they look at people, when they look at evil people, they do not look at them with disgust. That, that's not how Jesus looked at us. He looked at them and wept because he loved them. This is how the sent people of God look at people. I mean, and let me tell you, it's a whole lot more fun, it's a whole lot more exciting, it's a whole lot more full to be able to look at people and love them. And when you love them, you look at them right where they are and you say, what do they need most? They need Jesus. They, they need the truth of Jesus. When you look at people with disgust, you say, how could they do that? They're so evil, whatever. What do you do? You turn around. You go the other way. You avoid so I don't, I don't want to be a part of that. Jesus has now sent us. Do you see? The church, we are the called out sent ones of God. The church does not love mission. The church does not have a heart for mission. The church does not do mission. The church does not hope there will be more mission. The church is mission. 
this is part and parcel to who we are. You can't extract mission from the church and still have the church. You, you have something else entirely. Paul did not give his life. The apostles did not give their lives. Jesus did not give his life. So that there could be this safe country club Christianity. They gave their life so that the sent people of God could then live their identity and transform the world to impact every sphere of society, every corner of culture. You take mission away from the church, you don't have the church. You have a country club. You see, you've been sent. It's who you are. You're the sent people of God, and there is nothing better. Man, you talk about Thanksgiving, you talk about joy. Is there a little scariness in there? Is there a little fear? Yeah, absolutely. But that's why we have the comfort. That's why Jesus says, hey, I'm with you always, even in the scary parts. Even when it's tough, even when you want to throw in the towel and give up, I'm with you, sent people of God, because God himself is the sent and sending one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Sometimes we look at ourselves, we can scarcely imagine that you would choose to send us because we know ourselves. But God, we thank you that living a life full of the Holy Spirit, you, you surface all those issues, all those tensions, all those difficulties, and you have us deal with them. And then you overflow from within us these springs of living water so that we can then go share Jesus and impact people. God, what a privilege it is to be the sent people of God, to be your church. Forgive us for when we would exchange that sentness for programs. Help us to go and engage every mission field that you've given us in life by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.